Today's reading is from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 5. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of the things I value is being biblical. But one of the things that's worth asking is, what does that mean? We were greeting each other this morning out, out in the narthex. Jackie Quinn asked me if I was a scout. And yeah, back in the old days, I was a Boy Scout. I went on camping trips, went on canoeing trips, even went to Philmont. I like being a scout. But now I'm a wimp. <laughs> I like a mattress. I like air conditioning. I like indoor plumbing. So am I a scout? Mm, probably not much of one anymore. What's it mean to be biblical? Does it mean that I dress like they did in the Bible? Doesn't look that way. Does it mean that I treat the Bible as if it's a magic book, a, a talisman, that whenever there's danger or anything, I go get it, or, or that maybe when I want to learn it, I put it on my head and get it through osmosis? Or, or does it mean that I, I engage in bibliomancy? Y'all know how to do bibliomancy, right? That's where you do... <laughs> Judas went out and hung himself. <laughs> Don't like that one. Go thou and do likewise. Eh? What thou doest, do quickly. That's bibliomancy. That's not being biblical. It's also not necessarily being a literalist. A lot of things in the Bible we do take literally, but it doesn't make sense to take everything literally. If you have your Bibles with you, look at Proverbs 26 for just a minute. If you're in, the, in your Bible, you can open up to the middle, and unless you have lots of notes at the end, uh, Proverbs is close to the middle, maybe a little bit to the right. Proverbs chapter 26 Verse 4, it says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Okay, are you supposed to answer a fool according to his folly? Looks that way. Looks like, you don't do that. How about verse 5? Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. You're not supposed to do it. You're supposed to do it. 
Which is it? Well, if we're only literalists, we're just spinning in the air trying to figure out what to do. But part of being biblical is recognizing the genre of Scripture. What kind of literature is it? What kind of thing is God trying to communicate here to us? When we recognize genre, it helps us an awful lot. It helps us when we go to the parables of Jesus. Jesus, once upon a time, told about a guy that was on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And some muggers came along and beat him up and left him for dead. Y'all know this story, right? And along comes a priest, and the priest goes, and eh, that's not, not going to do that, and he goes by. And then there's a Levite that comes by, but then there's a third guy that actually stops and helps him. Anybody know who, what we know about that guy? He's the Samaritan. He's a good Samaritan. But what's his name? Does it make sense to ask his name? No, because it's a parable. The genre of parable means that it's not something that happened, but it's something that illustrates what Jesus is trying to communicate. Now, if we interpret everything in the Bible as parable, we're, we're going to miss something really important because the main overarching genre that I see in Scripture is narrative. It's story. It's a story of who God is, what he's done. Without the reality of what God's done in history from creation through the life of Jesus, if we miss what God has actually done, we're going to be in big trouble. But as we look at Scripture as a whole, as we look at the Bible, we see story. We see a trajectory. We see that it's going somewhere. We're looking today at the big story of Scripture that we see from Genesis through Revelation. One of the Bible scholars that I've read a lot of is, is a fellow by the name of Tom Wright. Sometimes when you, when you read his books, he's called Tom. Other places, he's called N.T. Wright. Now, you'd think from the number of books he wrote that the NT would stand for New Testament, but it doesn't really. <laughs> N.T. Wright, when he talks about being biblical, about, about biblical authority, he uses the analogy of a play. Some of you have been in plays. More of you have read plays or seen plays. You know that plays are divided up commonly into parts. Anybody remember what we call those parts of a play? Acts. And then the acts are sometimes broken up into scenes. And, and the way the play works is what happens in, acts to, in act number two follows on act which? Act number one. And by the time you get to act number four, in theory, it's advancing the storyline that's in Act 1, 2, and 3. And what Tom Wright does is he looks at the Bible and sees five acts. The first act is creation. God creates everything. We see that in the very beginning. 
Genesis 1 and 2. Act number 2 is the fall. That's where Adam and Eve in chapter 3 decide, hey, we're going to go in our way instead of God's way. The problem of sin enters the world, and that continues to be worked out in the next chapters of Genesis. By the time we get to chapter 12, what, what Jillian read for us just a few minutes ago, we see the next act starting, Act 3, the story of Israel. And we see that through numerous scenes as we read the rest of the Old Testament. By the time we get to the New Testament, we have the first four books of the New Testament. Anybody remember what the first four books of the New Testament are called? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the fourth act. That, that's Jesus. Then we hit the fifth act that not surprisingly starts with the book of Acts that describes the history of the church. And the rest of the New Testament can fit in that fifth act. According to Wright, and I agree with him on this, we're still in that fifth act. We're not in scene one anymore. We're not in scene two. I don't know what number scene we're in. You could probably divide that up multiple ways. But we're still in the same play. We're still in the same drama. So being biblical means not just knowing what's gone on before, not just knowing Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, and the earlier parts of Act 5. But being biblical is stepping into the play, joining the drama, taking part in the scene that God has us currently involved in. So when we are living biblically, when we're being biblical people, when we're submitting to biblical authority, what we're doing is we're living in light of who God is and what he's done and the trajectory of his work from Genesis, Act 1, through Act 4 into Act 5. Now, sometimes, I like this. Sometimes, I like submitting to God's authority. Sometimes, I like being biblical. But sometimes, I don't like it. Sometimes, it, it means that I have to change. Sometimes, it means that I have to set my will aside and go with God's will. Sometimes I have to submit. Have you, have you all heard that word? We, we have bad words in, in our culture today, don't we? Words that we're not supposed to say anymore. Submit is one of those words. We don't like it. Maybe it's okay for other people to do it, but not us. But my problem, if I'm going to be biblical, I have to submit. I have to submit to God. I have to submit to what God is calling me to. Now, as we look at this big story of God and seek to be biblical, seek to be a part of it, this passage that Jillian read is one of the most important that we find. It helps us understand what God's up to. We see that God is responding to human lostness, to human brokenness. We see here in this text that God calls a man named 
Abram, a man that we later know as Abraham, doesn't indicate here why he chooses Abram. It's not like God says, oh, I'm going to look throughout all the earth and I'm going to find the guy that is most in line with my love, most in line with my purposes, and I'm going to choose him. So we read the story of Abraham in Scripture. We see a guy that is profoundly imperfect. We see a guy, for example, in Genesis 22, when God says, hey, I want you to go take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go take him to the place I'm going to show you and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now, if you're Abraham's son that he loves, what do you want Abraham to do at that point? Do you want Abraham to say, okay, I'll go kill my son for you, God? Or do you want Abraham to do maybe what he did back in Genesis 18 and argue with God a little bit? God, I'm not sure I'm getting you right here. Abraham had some issues here. And yet he was the one that God chose. He's the one that God says here, I want you to be my man. I want your family. Yes, your family. You don't have a family yet, but I want your family to be my people. And God gives Abram instructions. He says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Gives him instructions. Abram never been there before. It requires trust. Abram has to trust God. And he has to act. You can't just say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you, but I'm going to keep doing exactly what I've always done. He has to trust God. But there's something else here that we only see in the background of the text. It's that Abraham's decision to trust God, to act on God's directions here, had consequences for other people. His wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, they had to move too. When we trust God... When we join in what God's doing, when we act in obedience, it affects the people around us. Parents, when, when you decide you're going to be a Christian, not just a church attender, but, but even that, when you decide you're going to be a Christian, it's going to affect your kids. Husbands, when you decide you're going to sell out to Jesus and obey him no matter what, it's going to affect your wife. Wives, when you decide you're going to sell out to Jesus and follow him no matter what, it's going to affect your husband. There are consequences when we take up the way of God. God promises here that he will bless Abram. He will bless him, make him a great nation, and that through him all nations on earth will be blessed. Okay, let's have a pop quiz here. Which nations on earth does God intend to bless through Abram and his family? All of them. Even the ones we don't like? Even the ones that don't like us? E even the ones that act like they're our enemy? 
even the ones that seem to be led by evil people? Is it possible that God really meant what he said to Abram? That he wants to bless all nations through Abram and his people? Two parts of what God's promising here. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing. And we see that theme repeated throughout Scripture. We see it repeated to Abraham. We see it repeated to Isaac. We see it repeated to Jacob just in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bibles, let's look at the next book of the Bible, Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is after the actual Exodus event of coming out of Egypt has happened. It's before what happens in Exodus 20. Exodus 20 might be the passage everybody knows because that's the Ten Commandments. We know the Ten Commandments, right? But Exodus 19, starting at verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Okay, we see parallelism there. Descendants of Jacob, people of Israel, that's the same people. Hebrew likes to do that, likes to say something and then say it again a slightly different way. These are the descendants of Abraham, the children of promise. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. You've seen what's happened in the previous acts. You've seen what's happened in the previous scenes of this act, people. You know who I am. You know that I'm faithful. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here is that promise to Abraham reiterated. I am going to bless you. You will be my people. But where's the other part of the promise, the bless all nations? Well, it's right there when they're called a kingdom of priests. The job of a priest is to stand between people and God. God's intention for Israel, for the chosen people, was that they would be his representatives to all the nations, to all the peoples, so that through what God does in their life, all nations might come to know him. Okay, that's Exodus 19. Let's try another passage. Let's try New Testament. So y'all don't just think it's Old Testament stuff here. Let's try 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the opposite end of the Bible for those of you that are new to the Bible. First Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Remember that language from Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests? Here we see royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, not just led you out of Egypt, but called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, you Jews, you Gentiles, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This passage in 1 Peter is a direct echo of what we see God saying to Israel in Exodus 19. It's a promise of God. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's intention even today is to bless people, to form them together into a people who are his very own, and to use those people to bless the whole earth. You can also see an echo of it in what, what I preached last week in Ephesians 2. We saw last week in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that God seeks to bless us personally as individuals as we find life in Christ. But we saw also in the second half of Ephesians 2, verses 11 and following, that God seeks to break down the barriers, the walls between peoples, in that context between Jew and Gentile, and bring them together through faith in Christ so that they will be his own people, a temple built up full of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be biblical people? Well, it means first that, that we've come to faith in Christ, that we as individuals have personally come to Christ and said, I need your grace, I need your mercy, I, I receive now the life that you offer me. We need that. But it also means that we've been joined together, united to the body of Christ, the church, by the Holy Spirit. We don't just believe and, and get our little fire, inter, eternal fire insurance card that we carry in our wallet till we get to the pearly gates. We take up life with God together through the Spirit. And I'd add that we join God in what he's doing because God invites us. God, God invites us today, whatever age you are, to join him in his, what, what he's doing, to listen to him to take him at his word, to obey him. So what can we do today? Well, there might be somebody here today that you have never yet given your life to Christ. You have never yet received the grace and life that he offers. Today, that might be for you. It might be when you come for communion, when you receive the bread, which we, we celebrate as his body, when we, we take the juice, which is his blood offered for us that at that point you say, Lord, I receive you. Receive the life you offer me. And that might be some of you. Some of you today might want to become a member of this church, a part of this body, as we together seek to obey God, seek to join him in what he's doing. Some of you might need to do what I need to do continually, which is repent. You might need to set aside your ways of doing your own thing, of controlling your own life. And say, Lord, I want to I follow you today. I want to trust you. I want to stand on your promises. And some of us today, we might just need to decide to become a willing participant in what he's doing. We might need to learn to pay attention to what God's doing so we can become a part of it. In just a moment, the ushers will be coming for our morning offering. Our offering today, what it looks like is people putting money in a plate. 
And that's a good thing. Helps the church do what we need to do. But the most important thing that happens in the offering is you offering yourself to God. It's an act of worship that we do because we love him and we trust him. Let's pray. And after I pray, the ushers will come and receive the offering. Father, I thank you so much for your promise. Your promise to bless us. Your promise to make us your people who are your very own. Lord, I thank you that we have access to your life through your gift of your son, Jesus. Fill us today with your Holy Spirit so that we will be bound tightly to you, tightly to each other, and we'll be able to discern how to live as your people here and now in this world that desperately needs you. Amen.